1: Tonight on The
2: Readout. My goal, this is not revenge, right? What this is, is accountability. I don't want to see anyone, including Donald Trump, indicted, prosecuted, convicted, incarcerated, simply because I fundamentally disagree with them. This is all about accountability. He needs to be held accountable for his dirty deeds.
1: Michael Cohen testifies before a grand jury in the investigation of Trump's hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. And with the wall seeming to be closing in, Trump is once again calling for an investigation of the investigation. Also tonight, President Biden reassures Americans that their money is safe in the bank after two recent bank failures. And we'll look at the role Trump era deregulation played in the financial havoc in Silicon Valley. We begin tonight with Mike Pence, a former vice president who quite possibly is most famous for his tongue-biting silence. But believe it or not, Mike Pence used to talk for a living. Seriously, he was a right-wing talk radio host in the 90s. True story. Meaning it was once his job to say what he thought.
2: I mean, is adultery no longer a big deal in Indiana and in America? I'd just love to know your thoughts, because I... I, for one, believe that the Seventh Commandment contained in the Ten Commandments is still a big deal.
1: Ah, what a difference two decades and a MAGA takeover makes. These days, Pence is hardly known for his opinions, even about the mob Trump unleashed to hunt him on January 6th, and who called for his death in a very specific way. They even brought their own noose. Pence would go on to condemn Trump in his uniquely safe way. Never mind that he came within 40 feet of the mob. Trump inflamed and trained on him to punish Pence for not breaking the law and declaring Trump's electors would be certified even though he lost. That mob forced Pence into hiding in a loading dock beneath the Capitol building for hours until the attack ended. Well, two years later, Pence has finally said out loud what he really thinks about all of that. It happened Saturday night at the annual Gridiron Dinner, a white tie affair attended by politicians and journalists in Washington, D.C. Now, we can't play it because the gridiron forbids cameras at its event, meaning no video, no audio. And yes, the irony of journalists holding a closed-door political event is not lost on us. But we do know what was said based on those journalists' account of Pence's speech, which included saying, quote, Trump was wrong. I had no right to overturn the election and his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. And I know history will hold Donald Trump accountable. Pence also said what happened that day was a disgrace and it mocks decency to portray it in any other way, which kind of sort of sounds like a swipe at Tucker Carlson. Pence also came with jokes trolling Trump about his fragile ego, saying Trump wanted Pence to sing wind beneath my wings. In particular, the line, did you ever know that you're my hero during their weekly lunches? He also took a shot at Trump over classified documents, saying, I read that some of those documents they found at Mar-a-Lago were actually stuck in the president's Bible, which proves he had absolutely no idea they were there. But Tip your waiters. Ought ah, to be a fly on the wall at that dinner, perhaps on Pence's hair. And look, it is not hard to see why Pence chose to let loose. I mean, hello, the guy tried to get you killed. And Pence also wants to be president. So maybe getting the media elite on his side helps somehow. But saying history will hold Trump accountable is kind of a weird take, given that that only happens through the justice system. And Pence is currently refusing to testify in the DOJ probe into January 6th and vowing to fight their subpoena. So accountable? How? How? But as we now know, Pence is not alone in talking one way about Trump in public and another way behind closed doors. More than a million pages of internal messages in the billion-dollar Dominion defamation suit have revealed the lies behind the Fox-Trump love affair. New reporting on the matter focuses on Fox Vice President Raj Shah, who privately rejected the White House narrative of a stolen election while keeping those lies alive to protect the company brand. Shah had... Shaw was a major aide, a senior aide in Trump's White House for two years before snagging a gig at Fox. The Washington Post reports that three days before the Capitol attack, Shaw exchanged text messages with another former White House spokesman, Josh Raphael, who flagged to Shaw a tweet noting that Trump's daily schedule now carried with it the vague assurance that the president would make many calls and have many meetings. Raphael wrote, quote, I think what they meant is the president will wake up early and commit many, many crimes, including but not limited to obstruction of justice, attempted fraud and treason in an effort to conduct a coup. Man, these conservatives got jokes. Another, let's say, memorable message came from a Tucker Carlson producer who has since left Fox. The producer called the delicate, or called the delicate dance with their audience surreal, quote, like negotiating with terrorists, he said, but especially dumb ones. Cousin effing types, not Saudi royalty. Joining me now is Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large for The Bulwark and an MSNBC columnist and contributor, and Tara Settmeyer, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and former Republican communications director. Charlie, I got to go to you first because uh, you, me, and he, you, me, and uh, uh, Mike Pence all used to do talk radio. So so you know um, his former career, right? I, I mean, it is kind of ironic that he really did talk for a living. And he did it in very conservative talk radio where the goal, and you used to do this for a living, too, is to keep the audience engaged, but also to never contradict what they already think. That seemed to be his job then and now.
3: Yes, and, and so he's sort of trapped in this loop. Look, the fact is that, uh, you know, it's one thing to speak out at the gridiron dinner, um, but he needs to testify. He needed to have testified at the January 6th committee. He needs to stop fighting the, the subpoena. But also he needs to recognize that the fact that he is willing to say what he has said is the reason he is never going to be the Republican nominee, because that is disqualifying. That tells you a lot about the Republican Party, former governor, former vice president, who will never be president because he dares to uh, call out the president for his attempted coup. And
1: hey, you know who, who, who agrees with that? Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has since, of course, responded uh, to Mike Pence's remarks at the Gridiron. And, and this is what he said. He said, he blames Trump for January 6th. He said, had he sent the votes back to the legislatures, they wouldn't have, they would have had a problem with January 6th. So in many ways, you can blame him for January 6th. Basically referring, admitting that that was the purpose of the mob. He also said, I guess he figured that being nice is not working because he's at number three in the polls. So he figured he might as well not be nice any longer. Um... Terror. This is an admission of guilt. So Trump is basically saying, yeah, that mob was there to kill you if you didn't give me the election. And it's the proof is they came to get you. And that if I'm a Department of Justice lawyer, I'm writing that down. <laughs> Your thoughts. Uh,
4: doesn't Trump always do that? He always admits to the crime and he turns it around and blames everybody else. He always it's always about rejection. He has been saying this and blaming Pence since January sixth and prior to that, I mean, it was the Lincoln Project that put out the ad after the election that let Trump know. By the way, Mike Pence is the one that's actually going to seal your fate here. You lost the election, and Pence is going to seal your fate on January sixth with that, you know, with that ceremonial um, uh, power there in Congress. And they they didn't know. I mean, it's in Pence's book. They the Department of Justice was contacted to find out how they could get back at Lincoln Project because it pissed off Donald Trump so much that we uh, alerted them to this fact. And so it's this has been brewing for quite some time. We've seen the anecdotes in the past about how Trump called Pence all kinds of names and basically called him a coward and said, you're the P word if you don't do this. And, you know, I mean. Pence has been cowardly in a lot of ways. I think he's a weakling because he should have been this strong about what happened on January 6th immediately after and consistently after. You can't be this sanctimonious and this pearl clutching about things um, two and a half years later when you're trying to find political expediency now to run, a lane to run in, which he doesn't have one. What 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 constituency does, does, he, does he have? He doesn't. But I don't really give him any credit for this now. And I wish that this wasn't as big news as it is. Because where the hell was this for two years? He's only saying this now because he wrote a book where he talked about it and he's trying to run for president and he did it to a crowd where he's trying to garner favor with them so they'll write glowing stories about him as he runs for president. I, I really, I'm over Mike Pence and tired <laughs> of everyone all of a sudden giving him a gold star and a cookie. What Chris Rock said, it. what do you want a cookie? We're doing the right thing. He should have done yeah, this. It, so um, I'm kind like- of over it. <laughs>
1: It's like getting your <laughs> your allowance for cleaning your room. Is uh, it is the other day? I mean, look. But but here's the danger of it, though, Charlie. And I think this is what's important: is that you have a Republican base that's also reflected on Fox News that both despises yeah. their followers and fears them. They're in absolute terror of these people to the point where you right. had Kevin McCarthy say, "Yeah, Trump totally did it. He's totally responsible." And then turn around and say, "You know, it's not really clear. I had to give this to Tucker because he needs him to rewrite it." The the the, the Republican base is now so, in a sense, they've been trained to hear what they want to hear on their TV networks, on their websites, regardless of the truth, so that yeah. they're so, they become so enraged when the actual truth hits them that they're willing to overturn the government. I mean, this has been a dangerous game. Danger. Rush Limbaugh played it. Mike Pence right. played it. They're still playing it because they're too afraid of their audience to tell them the truth. Everyone knows what happens on January 6th that knows about civics, that it was going to be Biden. They couldn't tell them that because they were too scared. And look what happened.
3: And now they're trapped by that. Uh, you're, you're right. I mean those quotes that we're getting show the the contempt they have for their audience, but also how afraid they are of their audience. The audience wants to you know Fox to be a safe space. Republican politicians have also internalized this, which means that you're going to have this this, the, this split screen, what they say in private, what they say in yep. public. But it also means that they're not going to be willing to stand up to the base and tell them, okay, you know, thus far and no farther. There are no guardrails. There's nobody like John McCain to say, no, 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 Barack Obama is a good family man. You know, you you can't use that kind of language. So, right. um, you know, I agree with Tara, but It is it is, you know, it is worth noting that Mike Pence is is at least willing to say these things. It is by no means adequate. It is by no means enough. But maybe it breaks through at some point when they begin to hear this, because you're going to have to have people from that world who are the ones who are going to say you've been lied to. This was a coup. It was undemocratic. What Tucker Carlson is doing is an offense against decency, because, quite frankly, they're not going to listen to us. They're not going to listen to NPR, yeah. the New York Times. So the more voices, Pence the better. <laughs> but but, again, <laughs> but you hear like, you're right. 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 You're right.
1: You're right. 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 Yeah, but but yeah, somebody has to say it, Tara. And, you know, I'm kind of, a, right. to, to Charlie's point, someone has to say, I mean, look, the reality is Republican members of Congress are going to go yeah. to the jail and visit the insurrectionists who tried to kill them. That's where we are now. They're going to lead oh, yeah. a, a delegation to, to kneel to the people who threatened to kill them. If they had gotten their hands on any of those people, they don't know who they are. They would have grabbed them and they would have hurt them just like they would have hurt Mike Pence. They would have hurt any of them. But now they're going to go and, and and bow down to the people who tried to kill them. I mean, I think at a certain point there has to be a circuit breaker on the right. I mean, I remember when Kavanaugh was up for the Supreme Court, it was demoralizing for women to think about and people who watch, you know, networks like this one to know that he was getting on. On the weekend show I was on, we told them he's going to get through. This is reality. We could do math. They have the votes. And, and it's like telling people that ain't great for numbers. It ain't great. But it, you got to do it. Okay. It's the job who on the right is going to do the job of breaking the circuit with this base that has been trained. You will hear what you want to hear or else you are going to threaten to kill the people <laughs> that. Well, uh, you know what? You're right. You're right. They
4: have to be told the truth. Right. Um, Lincoln Project just put out an ad trolling Trump and his followers in Mar-a-Lago and in Iowa saying, listen, if Fox News won't tell you the truth, we will. This is what they really think of you and Donald Trump. And then it's starting to that is starting to break through a little bit with people realizing that, wait a minute, we're being lied to. But where do they go from there? Is that going to radicalize them more? And they and they gravitate toward the Steve Bannon's and the OANN's and the Conspiracy right. theorists, or are they going? Yeah. Is the fever going to break? Well, that's up to them. People are responsible for their own behavior, but all we can do, we're responsible for telling yeah. the truth, and that's what we're going to continue to do. We have a responsibility to do it for absolutely. the health of our
1: democracy moving forward, for the survival of our democracy. Absolutely, at some point, people have to hear, it, and more information is more painful. That is the rate. That's reality, uh, Charlie. But it's Sykes, also no. information but it's power. Information is power. That's right. You've <laughs> got to know it. you got to, that cold splash of water wakes you right on up. Uh, thank you very much, Charlie Sykes and Tara Setmeyer. Um, up next on The Readout, Michael Cohen testifies. Here's a guy who woke up. Michael Cohen testifies before the grand jury investigating hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. So will Teflon Don finally be held accountable for at least one of his many, many misdeeds? The Readout continues after this.
0: You can live out your MasterChef dreams.
2: Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election.
5: We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that, that I actually care about. That's
2: this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. What's your goal today? My goal is to tell the truth. My goal is to allow um, Alvin Bragg and his team to do what they need to do. I'm just here to answer the questions.
1: Donald Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, testified before a Manhattan grand jury today for more than three hours in the investigation over a hush money payment Cohen arranged to porn actress Stormy Daniels on Trump's behalf days before the 2016 presidential election. Now, while it was Cohen's first time in front of this grand jury, he has met with prosecutors at least 20 times during the investigation preparing for this day. He told reporters that he will be back on Wednesday to continue testifying. It comes as Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is said to be closing in on a decision whether to indict Trump, which could be an historic first against a former president. Bragg's office has extended an invitation to Trump to testify before the grand jury as well. But after meeting with his legal team over the weekend, Trump, not surprisingly, has decided to RSVP No. In fact, in pure Trump fashion, his lawyers are now calling for an independent investigation into that very same DA's office, claiming prosecutors have weaponized the office in its years-long investigation of Trump. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, and David K. Johnston, uh, founder of DCReport.org and author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, um, a title that makes a lot of sense. Lisa Rubin, I, I want to start with you on this. So. There is one, this is the possibility under New York election law. It's section 17-152. It's conspiracy to uh, promote or prevent election. Any two or more persons who conspire to promote or prevent the election of any person to a public office by unlawful means and which conspiracy is acted on by one of the parties thereto shall be guilty of a misdemeanor. Is that what Trump is facing? Is he facing a misdemeanor? Because Michael Cohen went to prison for this.
6: No, and I realized that, Joy. Michael Cohen did go to prison. This is a possible statute that the New York DA's office could use to bump up the falsification of Trump's business records to a felony. The falsification of business records statute says... If you falsify your business records to further another crime or to conceal it, that itself can be a felony. And that underlying crime does not itself have to be a felony. So it's one of these one plus one equals two situations. I've speculated that one of the crimes they might be looking at is the one that you just cited, Section 17-152. It's not a conventional campaign finance violation. Rather, it's about a group of people coming together to promote somebody's election through unlawful means. And I've speculated those unlawful means is Michael Cohen bank fraud. He got a home equity loan to pay off Stormy Daniels. That, as we know, was fraudulently obtained, Joy. And just stay with you for a
1: second, Lisa. Um, Joe Tacopino was uh, out talking today, um, His Trump's lawyer, this morning. And he said, well, the issue is these were personal funds that were used, so it's not a contribution. It can't be a campaign finance violation because they were personal funds that were used. Does that wash?
6: I don't think so. But more importantly, if this is the theory that the DA's office is thinking about, it's never, you know, they're not conceptualizing it as a campaign finance violation in the first place. One of the unique features of going this route is that you don't have to have the debate about whose funds were these and is it a federal violation or a state violation. You can characterize this as a violation of state law through and through and perhaps indict Mm -hmm. Trump that way rather than having the debate about campaign finance law.
1: David, let let me bring you in here, because so there has always been this sort of question in my mind, and I think in many people's minds, why the feds didn't go after Trump? Because they did indict Michael Cohen, again, and send him to prison. And this is what SD and I wrote about that. During the campaign, Cohen played a central role in two similar schemes to purchase the rights to stories, each from women who claimed to have had an affair with individual one, which is Trump, so as to suppress the stories and thereby prevent them from influencing the election. With respect to both payments, Cohen acted with intent to influence the 2016 presidential election, he coordinated his action with one or more members of the campaign, including through meetings and phone calls. In particular, Cohen himself is now admit, as he has now admitted with respect to both payments, he acted in coordination with and at the direction of individual one. So he was prosecuted for that. There's also now some evidence that this prosecutor, this state prosecutor, is squeezing Alan Weiselberg, who Cohen testified under oath was in the room and was told with him to figure out how to pay Stormy Daniels does Do you think Weiselberg, you're reporting on this family his very second unto none, is squeezable because he's already gone to jail for Trump?
2: Well, that's a really good question because Allen is a wholly owned subsidiary of Donald's mind and has been for fifty years. Um, I think the reason that the Justice Department didn't pursue the Michael Cohen case, which uh, looks like a slam dunk, is that they didn't see it as being the biggest a case to bring if you're going to go after a former president. On the other hand, Alvin Bragg you know, decided not to go the RICO route, which I thought was a very smart move, Article 480 of the New York Penal Laws. And now he's come back with using uh, the New York State business laws, which can be very effective, as Lisa points out. To misdemeanors, you get a felony. And uh, his own efforts now by Trump's lawyers are going to be to say, oh, this is all illegitimate. Uh, The laws are murky. Uh, We don't know what we're doing here. And Bragg may well bring a broader case than that. Uh, Weiselberg is right now in jail. He has an agreement that he has to fully and faithfully testify. I don't think he did that in his own trial, the one for the Trump organization and himself, but he didn't he didn't flake out either completely. I'm sure there's been a serious effort to say to him you're going to have to be candid about what happened here, and bringing in other witnesses like Jeff Connie suggests that there's other evidence that uh, uh, Alan Weisselberg knew about these illicit payments.
1: And who is Jeff Conney?
2: Uh, he's another Trump finance guy. He works under Alan Weiselberg.
1: So it, it, so if they're now starting to zero in on the Trump organization as being a part, David, of pulling together this scheme, so are you saying the pressure on the organization will be a way to make Trump pay for it? Because it seems to me that if you and I agree that I'll go rob a bank and give you the money, we both supposed to go to jail, not just not just me.
2: Well, what I think Bragg is trying to do is get the people who worked for Trump, and by the way, are still on his payroll, to uh, turn on Trump and to present evidence that uh, they cannot escape because there's some documentation of some kind. You know, Donald famously tore up his uh, his uh, calendars at the end of every month, didn't operate with yeah. email, so he could deny things. But people on his staff have been called in to testify. And so I think the effort is going to be to build to the jury a solid case that of course, this is what happened uh, and to show, if anything, that Alan Weiselberg is trying to curry favor with Donald if his testimony is less than candid.
1: Right. Well, we shall see, because nobody can get pardoned if, if this is a state case. Uh, Lisa Rubin and David K. Johnston, thank you both very much. Still ahead. The failure of two big banks raises questions about the stability of American financial institutions and whether Trump-era deregulation is at least partly to blame. We'll be right back.
5: Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers.
1: President Biden reassured Americans that our banking system is safe in the aftermath of the second biggest bank failure in American history. Silicon Valley Bank, aka SVB, the country's 16th largest bank, collapsed last week when customers panicked and withdrew their money, $42 billion after the bank took a big loss. That led Signature Bank customers to panic and withdraw more than $10 billion in deposits there. Republicans, of course, are seizing upon this opportunity to use their new magic word and pin the crisis on wokeness, with Ron DeSantis and Congressman James Comer bringing up diversity initiatives and environmental investments as the supposed culprits in what happened with these banks. Well, here's the thing. Like all other banks, Silicon Valley's main goal is to make money Fortune describes it as the single most critical financial institution for the tech scene serving half of all venture-based, venture-backed companies in the U.S., including, yes, clean energy startups, because that is where the money is. As The Atlantic's David Graham points out, the reason that SVB would want to advertise its programs on DEI, Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance, or ESG, and other matters is not because it was enthralled to woke ideology, it's because that was a good business decision, i.e. they invest in stuff people like. And how does the tired meme brigade explain the presence of fervent Trumper and strictly anti-woke right-winger Peter Thiel, who was a big investor in SVB and who helped collapse the bank by yanking out millions of dollars on Thursday? Hmm. Republicans may want to cast their blame inward instead. In 2018, Trump signed a law weakening Dodd-Frank and reducing oversight on banks like Silicon Valley after SVP's CEO directly lobbied for it. As Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote today, had Congress and the Federal Reserve not rolled back the stricter oversight, SVB and Signature would have been subject to stronger liquidity and capital requirements to withstand financial shocks. But they weren't because of deregulation. Joining me now is Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California, ranking Democrat on the House Financial Services Committee. Um, Congresswoman, thank you for being here. And I assume that this matter will come before your committee. Um, I I do wonder, I just want to dispense with this really quickly. The right has already tried to make this a wokeness story because every story is a wokeness story. It's what the Wall Street Journal's Andy Kessler wrote. SVB notes that besides 91 percent of their board being independent and 45 percent women, they have one black one LGBTQ plus and two veterans. I'm not saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess, but the company may have distracted by diversity, been distracted by diversity demands. It does sound like he's saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess. What do you make of that?
7: Well, uh, let me tell you. Uh, in examining as much as I can what has taken place, listening to the briefings that one that I put together with FDIC, uh, talking with uh, the Feds, or with Powell, uh, talking with Yellen over at the Treasury, what what I know is this: uh, that the Silicon Valley Bank was a go-to bank for startup. Uh, Basically, no other bank uh, would uh, support them for the most part. Many, I think, of the traditional banks didn't understand this innovation and all that the startups were trying to get funding for. And so it's like not only did they support the startups, they might have taken too much risk uh, in doing mm-hmm. it. Uh, in addition to that, uh, you have to understand when we talk about regulation and deregulation, et cetera, uh, the financial services that banking community is interested in the bottom line. And so they're always going to be advocates for what they think will get the most money for them and take care of the customers that They want to serve. And so those of us who sit in the positions uh, like the Financial Services Committee, we have to be about regulation. We have to make sure we're protecting the people of this country. We have to make sure that we're watching the SEC, for example, our cop on the block. And so we have been in a struggle and we will always be in a struggle uh, because uh, their mission is a lot different from ours. And so you have this bank that was a go to bank that was uh, supporting all of these startups, et cetera. And I don't know how they may miss looking at their balance sheets uh, to see what was going on. And of course, when they actually understood, I suppose, what was going on, it was too late uh, to borrow money. It was too late to sell securities. And so here we had a bank that collapsed. And in that collapse, it forced this government to have to come to grips, or we had a real problem, and we had to do something fast. We should be, the government should be complimented in the way that they put together protecting the depositors, both those that are insured, those that were not insured, how we were able to protect jobs and how we were able to get those payrolls done so that these uh, owners of these uh, small tech companies could pay their staffs, etc. We did a miraculous job and we need to thank our agencies for doing that. We've got new questions that we've got to deal with. For example, what are we going to do about the uninsured from now on? We know uh, that the bank, I had ninety percent uninsured. We got to deal with that.
1: Let Let me ask you this, because you you're talking about regulation. Uh, Greg Becker, who is the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, he sold three point six million dollars worth of stock in potentially problematic transaction in, in a potentially problematic transaction days before the bank failed. So he's dumping stock. Um, We know that part of the, you know, the government, I guess they're not calling it a bailout, but helping these banks to stay afloat um, involves firing management. What can be done about that? I mean, you have a guy that's dumping stock, right, or dumping millions of dollars worth of stock before the bank
7: collapses. Uh, That's a serious thing, and, and we must be concerned about it. And we're not bailing out the banks We are really taking care of our depositors, both, again, insured and uninsured. And banks that have done, uh, you know, suspicious things or things that perhaps already in violation of regulation of laws are going to have to be accountable. They're going to have to be accountable for what they've done.
1: Do, do you think that maybe this is this is one sort of element where it is a bipartisan issue? I mean, Barney Frank, who people remember as the Frank in Dodd-Frank, um, reportedly supported weakening some of these regulations, and then he left to then join the board of one of these two banks, Signature Bank. Is that an issue where you have members of Congress who understand the regulatory process then going out into the private sector and joining these organizations on their boards and then supporting weakening the regulations?
7: Well, you know, I think we have looked at those issues somewhat. We need to look at them uh, in depth and uh, determine whether or not we're going to do in these instances like we've done in saying you can't lobby, you know, for a certain length of time. I think that those issues are worth looking at. Um, You know, Signature Bank was closed down. uh, And I think that That may happen with a few other banks, but I'm looking at Signature to see how much crypto was involved there, uh, because we got to know what role did crypto play in any of this. So we have a lot to explore, a lot to investigate, a lot to Mm -hmm. understand. McHenry and I are getting together. We're going to have a hearing as quickly as we can. uh, And we're going to try and work in a bipartisan way because we've Mm -hmm. got to make sure uh, that we'd be concerned uh, continuously still about contagion. Uh, we don't right. know some, a lot of stuff still out there. And so we've Co- got work to do.
1: Congresswoman Maxine Waters, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Okay. And thank up, you. Thank you. And up next, how students are stepping up to lead the fight against conservatives' anti-education agenda. I recently spoke with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi about that. And our conversation is next. Arkansas Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is joining Florida's Ron DeSantis in putting culture wars ahead of kids. She signed a sweeping education bill, essentially creating a voucher system and prohibiting certain topics, critical race theory and instruction on gender and sexual identity before the fifth grade. Arkansas students, however, did not take the legislation lying down. At Little Rock's historic Central High School, Sanders' alma mater, by the way, more than 1,000 students joined a recent walkout, and a group descended on a committee hearing to share their objections.
3: It doesn't work. It doesn't okay. help. Thank you very and it much. doesn't do anything uh, to actually address how bad this bill is. I think that the amendments are not sufficient. They do not support what the bill so you
0: needs. You
6: can only speak on these amendments.
0: When this bill is... Staking so many things, like our education. Much.
6: I'm speaking on why you should not accept these amendments. Well, I'm sorry. That's directly yeah. what we're speaking on.
1: You don't, you don't get to have, we, this committee gets to decide whether we do. We're taking your opinions.
4: I started off my speech here by saying that I wanted to thank y'all for the opportunity to speak. However, I take that back because y'all are not allowing us to speak.
1: Well, they tried to share their objections anyway. In an open letter, Central High School students took issue with Sanders invoking the history of their school in her State of the Union rebuttal, specifically the nine Black students who desegregated it under National Guard escort in 1957. The current students wrote, if Governor Sanders had her way, we wouldn't be able to examine how racism shaped these structures to allow for those violations to take place. Joining me now is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. His newest book is The Making of Butterflies, his second children's book adaptation of a story by the great Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, Dr. Kendi, it is always good to see you. It strikes me as a fact that we're learning that in this whole battle over education, the adults are the problem, not the kids'. Um, your comments on not just the Little Rock, Arkansas students standing up, but these students all over the country from Florida to Alabama who are saying, no, we want to learn.
5: So Joy, my, my research uh, as a scholar really began in studying student activists, uh, particularly black student activists in the late 1960s and early 1970s who came onto college campuses and noticed, that their history, that their culture, that their experiences uh, weren't reflected in the curriculum. And so students have been demonstrating and pushing for relevant, uh, truthful, diverse, multicultural educational system for quite some time. And they have consistently faced resistance from adults and, and now is no different.
1: What does it say about our society that for one of our two major political parties, the salient issue for them is stopping students from learning black history and from even discussing the existence of gay people? They, they have decided that is the most important issue in the country more than the economy, more than anything else. It's stopping kids from learning those two things.
5: What, what it says to me is 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 that in many ways, we're, we're not at a place where a major political party is trying to stop, let's say, Black children from going to school with white children at, at Central High School, but they're trying to segregate in a different type of way. They're trying to segregate out uh, the history and, and, and the experiences of, of people of color. So our bodies can be in these classrooms, but, but our cultures, our minds, our experiences cannot. So this is a new form of segregation, unfortunately, that that we're facing. And that's why these students are speaking out and speaking out against it.
1: Yeah, they don't want kids to learn history because they're going to understand that. Wait a minute. You guys are acting just like the segregations from before. Hmm. Let's talk about this book that you've created, because it is it is uh, an, an interesting time to be writing books for children. Uh, your new book, The Making of Butterflies, it's adapt- adapted from a Zora Neale Hurston book. Talk about the book and also the series. Um, why and, and what will children, young people get from experiencing these books?
5: Well, they will first and foremost experience the beauty and the creativity of, of African-American, particularly rural uh, black folklore in the ni- late 1920s that, that the great Zora Neale Hurston went into these private spaces and, and collected them. And, and the making of butterflies is actually adapted from a beautiful folktale of how butterflies uh, came to be. And, and they'll also, as young people, be able to uh, think about the beauty of, of their own imagination, of, of creativity, of, of different cultures, of, of different languages, all the things we should be teaching children, but apparently Republicans don't want us to.
1: You know, it it is interesting that, you know, a book like the the books that you've created are very likely to wind up banned in states like Florida and Alabama and Tennessee that are really being aggressive. I mean, they're banning books about Dr. King. Um, You know, it's it's so expansive in your view, if your books uh, join. And I know your books already are on their list of banned books, your other books. Does that Have you experienced that that makes young people want to read them more? Like, what is the impact of banning books?
5: I think it it is certainly some young people and even some parents want to get the books more. But as you know, Joy, sometimes... A, a child walks into a library and they don't know what they want to read. Right. And and right. now they can't stumble onto that book. That's going to create a, a lifelong reader. Uh, that book that, that, uh, that in which they can see themselves or they can't see themselves, but they learn more about themselves through learning about other people. And so that to me is part of the insidiousness or in certain cases, in certain classrooms in Florida, they'll walk into libraries and they won't see any books because <laughs> all empty. of the books have been taken off of the shelves.
1: Yeah. And what do you make of the fact that Republicans have decided that anti-racism is dangerous? That's your doctrine. And they said it's dangerous.
5: Well, enslavers said abolitionism was dangerous. Jim Crow segregationists said civil rights activists were are dangerous. And now white supremacists are saying that anti-racism and multiculturalism and diversity and all of these things that are seeking to create a society of, of, of equality are dangerous. And so to me, I'm not surprised because every anti-racist movement, every anti-racist intellectual uh, in this country's history have been called dangerous by people who are trying to conserve racism.
1: Yeah. The reality is, if you are anti-racist, it's like being anti-fascist. That means you're the opposite. And maybe you don't want to own that. Something that folks might want to think about. Uh, Dr. Max Kendi, thank you. And congratulations on the book series. Much appreciated. Thank you, Joy. Still ahead, Baby Steps, the Academy Awards show a little bit of improvement on diversity and inclusion, but they still got a long way to go. More next. Okay, full transparency, I did not tune in to the Academy Awards last night. I was binge-watching The Last of Us instead. So good. But I did keep abreast of the goings-on via the socials and was thrilled to see that it was a big night for the very fun, very wild independent film Everything Everywhere All at Once, a quintessentially American movie about a Chinese-American family. Michelle Yeoh became the first self-identified Asian woman to win Best Actress. Her family in Malaysia went appropriately wild with happiness when she was announced. It was the first Best Actress win for a non-white actress in 20 years, and only the second one ever. Yo was also the first person of Asian descent to win in a leading acting category, and the fifth person of Asian descent to win in any acting category in the Oscars' 95-year history. Here's a bit of her victory speech.
7: For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, <laughs> this... It's a beacon of hope and possibilities. This is proof that dreams dream big and dreams do come true. And ladies, don't let anybody tell you you are ever past your prime.
1: first Asian actress to be nominated for an Oscar, Merle Oberon, kept her heritage hidden until after her death due to the racism non-white actors faced in Hollywood for decades. Overall, it was a huge night for Asian representation. Yo's co-star, Ki, Huiyan, Ki Hui Kwan, won for Best Supporting Actor. And the Indian feature film RRR made history by winning Best Original Song. It's also the first Indian feature to win an Oscar. History was also made in the costume category with Ruth E. Carter becoming the first Black woman to win multiple Oscars in any category. She won for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And these monumental firsts are great, period, end of story. But real talk, the Oscars have been criticized for a long time for failing to recognize the talent of Black women in general and of women directors. And to lift the hood on that a bit... Entertainment Weekly spoke with four anonymous Academy voters about the criticism. One Academy voting actor said, quote, when they get in trouble for not giving Viola Davis an award, it's like no, sweetheart. You didn't deserve it. We voted and we voted for the five we thought were best. It's not fair for you to start suddenly beating a frying pan, frying pan, and saying they're ignoring black people. They're really not. They're making an effort, Viola Davis, and the lady director need to sit down shut up and relax. Somebody really said that in real life. Just so you remember what some of the folks who have who make up the jury for the Academy Awards are really like. Still, despite that negativity and haterism, the significance of everything, everywhere, all at once, winning seven Academy Awards is important because it is, as it is so often said by progressives who happen to be right about this, representation matters. The kind of roles that Asian actors and Black actors and Latino actors get to embody, that reach beyond trite stereotypes, the way LGBTQ characters are portrayed and who gets to portray them, the stories women directors get to direct matters. Opportunity matters. And yes, diversity, equity, and inclusion in this very diverse country matters. And it also happens to be good for business. It's not a favor to diverse talent. It's a favor from them. To the culture. And that is tonight's readout.
0: You can live out your master chef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel, connect with skilled professionals to get all your home
6: projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.